Hi, this is Cal Fussman, and welcome to Big Questions on September 11th, 2018. Today, you're going to hear a conversation I had with a man who, 17 years ago, had one of the towers of the World Trade Center fall on his head. His name is Michael Wright. He first told me about the experience only a few days after it happened. Michael was 30 years old and an account executive for a telecommunications firm at the time. He'd washed down a brand muffin with his morning cup of coffee and gone into the men's bathroom when the first hijacked plane struck. I recorded his account of what transpired in a bar over a beer and turned it into a story that appeared in Michael's own words in the January 2002 issue of Esquire magazine. The subhead called the story of his escape the fastest 3,863 words you will ever read. Those words move just as swiftly today. I've made it a habit to make sure the story gets circulated around the anniversary of 9-11. That's because every year people find out where Michael was on the day the planes took down the World Trade Center, and it's only natural that these people reach out to him to hear how he survived. As you might imagine, Michael doesn't want to relive the horror of telling the story over and over and over again. He's now running a successful company and caring for his family. What he does is simply point people to the original story that appeared in Esquire. A year ago, when I was experimenting with starting a podcast, I called Michael to get caught up and asked him if he'd like to look back on the events. Michael declines most interviews, and he was going through a rough time. One of his brothers had just passed away after a long battle with cancer, but he decided to have the conversation. I wish I'd taken the time to fly across the country and sit with him in a recording studio, but the quality of the audio over a phone line is not going to deter anyone from listening to his story. And now this recording can be passed around so that people can hear what it was like to be on the 81st floor the moment the first plane struck in Michael's own voice. And nobody will ever have to bother Michael. You can also find the print version of the original story online as a member of Medium. It's my hope that today and every 911 going forward, will be a peaceful day for Michael Wright. No ads in this episode. We'll pick up Michael's account on the moment the plane hit. I thought it was a like a gas main explosion or something like that because it was it was so big and right in your face. You know, everything in that bathroom, tiles falling off the wall, water spurting out, you know. Don't want to make it sound like a action film, but you know, the, 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 where we were was pretty severely damaged. So we assumed that something happened very close by. But, you know, the interesting is, thing about this is you're like in the bathroom, there's a guy in the stall. Yeah. Yeah. You know, a guy who, uh, you know, is doing his thing. Maybe he had a brand muffin also, but, you know, he was just doing his thing. The daily routine came out with a newspaper and just screamed, what the fuck was that? And, you know, then we were all you know, like uh, the next 10 minutes or so was just about scrambling and, and getting out of there. There was a 
woman I remember, I think her name was Alicia, uh, who yeah. got trapped. She was a coworker who got trapped in her bathroom. Yeah, they, you know, basically the, the picture, they all had metal door frames. The, the, because of the impact and the, and the shaking of the building, the door frame kind of buckled in. So she wasn't able to open it. Um, and there was a guy that I worked with who, quite frankly, probably saved her life. He spent, you know, as everyone else was running around, he was focusing on kicking that door open um, and he succeeded in getting her out. Well, when you look back on this whole experience and there's so much to come, do you, do you see yourself doing all the right things? You know, I mean, I think it's, you know, at, this, at, at that point, it's, it's survival mode, right? You know, something bad has happened. You're, you know, at this point, we're in the hallway, you know, the jet fuel had blown out the, the elevator, you know, the drywall around the elevator. You know, there was fire everywhere. There was smoke. You know, there were people screaming. I mean, to the degree that when I was in the bathroom, I didn't see some of the scarier things that some of my coworkers did, which was the fireball wrapping around the building. Um, you know, so I was a little bit naive relative to, to some of my um, some of my coworkers. So, you know, it was clear that this was sort of like a very severe fire drill situation. There was no question that we had to leave our floor. Right. So we were so close to it that we were surrounded by debris, by fire, um, that we had to get out of there. So it was more just like, okay, how do we get off this floor and start heading down? So I don't know if it was so much decision making as it was, you know, you do fire drills for a reason. You know, if there's a fire, you head to that door and you walk down. Right. And that's exactly sort of the mode we were in, um, obviously, with a a little bit more than your standard fire drill, uh, you know, emotions around us. But, uh, you know, that was sort of somewhat method, you know, methodological in terms of get to the stairs and get out of here. Do those fire drills in like second grade and third grade, do they all pay off? You know, I mean, to a certain degree. Uh, yes. Right. I mean, you you should know where you could where the where the stairs are so you can get out, um, quite frankly. To this day, I travel a lot, and I always get the hotel room close to the close to the stairs, uh, so that shouldn't be a mystery. But yeah, they did pay off. But you know, on the other side, the reason I knew which stairwell to go to was because that's where we were on the eighty-first floor, and the people who smoked uh, would go into the go into the stairwell, and that's where they would smoke their butts. So I mean, that's why I knew where my closest stairwell was. But yeah, I mean, hey, a little bit of training, I certainly I think it paid off to a certain degree. Okay, so you're you're now going from this completely mundane moment to like looking down the hall and seeing like a crack in the floor that's what like half the size of a football. Field. You know, I don't know if you've ever was in if you're in that building, but it was they had long hallways and offices on either side, and there was a crack at the base of one of the you know one of the walls that is. But what I could see looked like it was stretching all the way down the hallway. You knew something was bad. Like this wasn't a a standard, you know, someone left the coffee coffee pot on moment. So we had to, yeah, you know, it was clear we had to get the hell out of here. Okay, so now you're you're headed down the stairs, and there's an interesting moment because you're you're the phone guy, but you left your phone on your desk. Does, yes. Does that? <laughs> Now remember, this was this was two thousand and one, right? So you weren't looking on ESPN in the bathroom, 
you, you know, <laughs> in those days. You left your phone on, you know, you were barely texting in 2001. So, you know, my phone was for making phone calls and I had no reason to make a phone call when I was in the bathroom. So I left it with all of my, my laptop and all my sales, you know, leads and things like that uh, on my desk. So, uh, yeah, it was a nice star tech and I love that phone. And, uh, but it was, a uh, it was not destined to see the end of the day. Well, my question is, does it make you see your phone now in a different way, the same way you were just mentioning that when you're at a hotel, you get the room by the stairwell? No, I don't think so, actually. Now, maybe that's because I'm a telecommunications guy and, you know, all I do all day is build infrastructure for, you know, cell phone companies. So, uh, like, you know, I don't, I don't see it as a safety net. I don't see it as uh, uh, something that I feel dependent on for uh, my well-being. You know, there were plenty of manifestations of some things that some changes in my behavior afterwards. Uh, that was not one of them. Okay. So everyone's moving down the stairwell uh, pretty orderly, like a fire drill. And mm-hmm. uh, I guess at that point, like you mentioned, just feeling very naive about it, but like you're hearing speculation. What, what are people yeah. think? What are people thinking? You know, the, the, what, you know, there's little bits of information that were coming around in terms of, you know, often you'd have these tourist planes that would buzz around, you know, lower Manhattan. And the first thing we heard was speculation that one of those planes had crashed into the building. You know, that was sort of, now we're what, we're five or 10 floors below, uh, you know, where we were. That was sort of the first sort of update that people gave us. Um, or that was just kind of, no one was really giving an update. There was just sort of chatter going on. And, you know, logic said that, okay, that makes sense. We used to see those planes flying around all the time. So that seems to be what we thought happened. And so no, not many people were thinking Osama bin Laden. Not many people. Oh, no. 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 Oh. No, no, no. I mean, there were some people who were talking about that a bomb had gone off. Listen, we worked in that building. And there had been a bombing in 1993. So there were definitely people who uh, were aware of that. I wasn't. You know, I was kind of clueless about it. And quite frankly, I also thought if there was a bomb, I, you know, no one thought what happened was going to happen. So if there was a bomb that went off above us, now we're below it and we're okay. Unless, you know, I wasn't thinking there was multiple bombs, you know, there was, you know, we, we just weren't thinking that what was about to happen uh, was about to happen. You know, we, we thought that we were very close to something dangerous. I think there was different levels of people being freaked out uh, by being close to that. I wasn't one of those people. You know, I, I was like, OK, that was freaky. Holy shit, let's get out of here. But I wasn't really that frightened at that stage of, of the day. What was I, was, I was upset that I couldn't get in touch with my family because I knew they would be, they would be upset and they would be frightened. But um, I can't say at that stage, I was awfully scared. Sounds a little weird, but I wasn't. At, at what point down the steps and like, is this is like a slow process because you're going from 81 on a 70 to 60 yeah. to 50 to 40. Uh, is there a certain point where you realize, oh man, this 
this may be a little deeper than I thought. You know, it, it really wasn't, the gravity of it didn't hit me um, until I got to almost to the, the bottom floor. You know, I, I stayed behind because I knew CPR, firemen were going up. Like, there were definitely firemen, firemen look scared, right? I wasn't really registering that at, at, in the moment. But, you know, when I got to the plaza level, uh, because I had stayed behind, there was there were very few people behind me, or there was actually my stairwell. I don't think there was anyone behind me. I was one of the last people to get to the plaza level. And when I looked out of the plaza level and saw the worst vision I've ever seen in my life, you know, the result of people jumping from above, you know, fires, you know, the the carnage. That's when it hit me, and my head almost exploded. You know, it was like. You see something like that, like nothing prepares you for that, right? Nothing prepares you for seeing what looks like roadkill, only it's humans. And you can see that some of that roadkill has a suit on it, right? Or, you know, there's, you know, that's when it hit me. And that's, that was the, you know, that's when the, the, the fight or flight in me kind of kicked in. I, I remember you telling me like you saw the head of a woman uh, that was kind of like attached to some meat and that was it. And your hand kind of just automatically shot up in front of your face yeah. is at, yeah. at, at that moment, like is your is part of you saying, like, I don't want to see this. I just want to run away. Or do you feel like compelled to look around and understand the gravity of what has just happened. I, I don't think it's either. Actually, I think it's just all of a sudden your body just gets flooded with a a panic, right? That you know I don't recall wanting to look, but I saw. I don't recall trying to avoid it, but of course you see something like that. You're not you're going to want to cover your eyes, right? But it was, you know, at that point, you know, it was such, the gravity of it all hit me so severely that at that point, my, my body kind of took over from my brain. You know, I think it was, that was when I was like, I have to get out of here. And I don't know if I would had a hell of a lot of rational thought between that moment and the moment that I was safe, right? There were, there were some moments of clarity and some decisions I made that probably helped me. But for the most part, I was on, you know, I got to get out of here because now it's pretty clear that, um, you know, uh, I could die. So I need, to, uh, I need to do something to prevent that from happening. So you still don't really even know how this happened or what's going on. But you're just starting to like run for the street. Is that the idea? Yeah, I mean, we had to go down there. If you were anyone who was at the trade center, uh, there was a mall underneath. So, you know, I was able to see out into the plaza in between. And then we were descending another couple of stories, you know, down to call it the lobby level, uh, which the lobby level is actually sort of underneath the, uh, the plaza level where the people who are jumping had land, landed. Um, and that's where they were evacuating us through the mall. 
I was heading out towards what uh, what was the Five World Trade Center. So that's so on the uh, what was that the Meridian Hotel, the Millennial Hotel, which was to the east of the Trade Center. So the idea was to shuttle us through that mall and then up the uh, up the stairs back out of the street and then then out of harm's way. And so you're you're out on the street now, and it, is everything very hazy? Is there a lot of smoke? What what are you seeing around you? Yeah, I mean, you know, before I got to the street, I was in Five World Trade Center when the South Tower came down. So you know that was the you know that was a lot of crazy moments in the day, but that one is you know I I don't even know how you describe because there's not a lot of comparisons, the sound of a, a building that large coming down on top of you, basically, or half a block away. Um, that You hear the sound first uh, before anything? You felt the vibration first, right? Before you heard the sound, you felt the rumbling, and then the sound came after. And it was, uh, you know, how do you describe it? <laughs> it was incredibly loud it was and then you know if you look if you if you remember the scenes of it coming down that cloud that that cloud that spread out through all of lower manhattan you know those of us that were that close that cloud was like a punch of debris in your face right it it hit you so hard that you know for me it, it packed my mouth with debris my nose my ears you know, like we said in the article, it's like a little kid packing the sand pail. You know, so much of that dust hit you so fast that it, you know, I don't know if it not enough if you don't remember that moment. You know, I remember the sound. I remember waking up in the dark, but I don't, you know, I don't remember in between, right? But I do know when I woke up, when I, you know, regained, you know, my wits, I had to get all that stuff out of my, uh, out of my nose, out of my ears, out of my mouth before I could move on. Well, let, let me take you back because I like I can remember you you telling me that when you heard that crack, and I guess this was after you felt the vibration, uh, you you looked up and you saw that in the Millennium Hotel the windows were like mirrors, and yeah, so you were you're able to see what was coming down on you. Yeah, crazy. It's crazy. You know, I mean, even to this day, it still blows my mind that I saw that, you know, even to this day. I mean, I'm still sort of amazed that I was this close to all of this that happened. But that, that you know, that vision, it was, yeah, you, you saw the you saw the, the building coming down and, you know, you knew you didn't run out into that. You ran back into the building, which. I think was a good decision, but you know, and then it, and then all of the, the, the cloud and the debris came down on us. Okay. So you see, you hear the crack, you see the tower starting to come down in these windows and you run back inside for cover. Uh, mm-hmm. and like at, at that point, are you like sprinting? Do you know where you're going? What? All I know is I'm not going to where all that stuff seems to be falling. Okay. So. I had two options, run outside or run into a building that's provided some cover and try to get down the the stairs that were there 
to try to get as far away as what I was seeing coming down in the windows next door to me. And are, is the sound getting louder and louder and louder as this is coming down on you, or is it? Yeah. Well, you know, once the sound started, it was you know, it's like if you know if you've ever been to like a Blue Angels or something like that, it, when they come right over you and you get that roaring sound, it was like that, but sustained. It wasn't a moment. You know, it was coming down on you, and it, it, it you know, it wasn't stopping. So the decibels i don't know you know how you would measure something like that but it was extremely loud and the the rumble you know think of you know you're sitting in you're driving down the street and some guy pulls up in his low rider with a cake and bass system and it's rumbling you know think of that times a hundred that was sort of the feeling that you had under your feet oh man and and the other thing i remember because here your your wife and uh, Jenny's uh, up in Boston, correct? Correct. Yep. She was up uh, with her grandmother uh, up uh, visiting her grandfather's grave and staying with uh, staying with my family in Boston. And your oldest son, Ben, he's like six months, six months old at the time, correct? Yeah. 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 He's about six months old. Because I remember one of the things you told me was like, as the sound is coming down on you, like you're realizing like, uh-oh, like this is it, and yeah, over. you basically yeah. shout out like, "Oh no, oh no, Jenny and yeah. Ben, Jenny and Ben," yeah. and then you were yeah. like apologizing to me, saying, "You know, I know it wasn't the most creative response, but <laughs> right, yeah, hey man, yeah. no, I mean, yeah, exactly. I was, you know, it was, you know, it was a primal moment. You know, you, you're seeing." You know, what I was seeing, what I was feeling, what I had just seen, like it was over, right? It was over. So that was, you know, that was the the, the oh-so-non-creative response I had. <laughs> and and then, I mean, it, it sounds like the next scene is you, you waking up in blackness. Yeah. And that was a, that was a tough moment right because you know at this point the gravity of all of what's happening is apparent right so something catastrophic had happened you know at that point like i thought like a chunk of the building fell off landed like near me but i didn't know you know the what the total gravity but i knew something really bad had happened and now i wake up in the dark you know by myself no light no nothing and it's clear that there's smoke it's clear that there's hurt people around me and now i'm thinking okay i didn't just die but i'm probably not getting out of here and i'm probably dying a slower death than you know i you know i would want or anyone would want right because you were sitting there in the darkness you know i couldn't see anything you know at, at this point i was my eyes were injured my body was injured by but i i thought i was going to be aware of my own passing in a kind of slow unpleasant way and that's and that sucked so you know that was uh that was hard you know that was uh, that was one of the more difficult parts of times of the the entire day you, you had an amazing image at the time you said like this was like worse than death because 
now you're going to end up like one of those people at Pompeii that like the, the volcano had covered and you were just going to be laying there unable to do anything about it. And yeah. years or however long it would take somebody to find you in a final state. So, yeah. and this, this is where actually, if it was, if it was a movie, the music would turn and, and we'd see you actually, you couldn't see it in a movie, but I think you told me in your mind, you were having images of your wife and your son. And yep. seeing the, seeing them not with you but without you, yeah, and, yeah, very vividly actually. And that must have been incredibly spooky. Yeah, you know, it was that was hard, right? You think about, uh, you know, what you know that um, that's not. I come from a you know a big family that's very close, you know, and. You know the idea that I wasn't gonna I wasn't gonna be able to father my child. That was hard. The fact that you know Jay was gonna be, you know, left a widow and to raise this young boy, you know, without me, and that was hard. You know, and all the pain that she was gonna go through, and all the difficulty of me not being there was gonna introduce to her life. Like that was a that was a hard thought um, to, to try to figure out. Uh, and, and and that's where it kind of turns because that's where like you whatever shoots through you says I I got to get out of here I, I'm not ending up this way right <laughs> that's right yeah no I mean that's exactly right I mean that's when once again you go back to like I don't know where the hell I read it or what it was it was like okay when there's a fire you need to crawl you don't stand up. You know, if you can wrap something around your head, luckily there was, I was soaking wet because of the sprinkler. So tore off my shirt and wrapped the wet shirt around my head so that I wasn't breathing in the fumes and uh, just started crawling to try to get the hell out of there. Um, didn't really have a plan other than, you know, it's, it's lying here doesn't seem like it's a, it's a good idea. And so you, are you, are you bare, bare chested at this point? Because you, you're taking your shirt off. We're, were you know no the, the the fashion of the day was you always wore a t-shirt underneath your uh your dress shirt so um and uh yeah so luckily for the people around me i was not bare chested i was uh i had my uh you know my hanes my hanes t-shirt and i had my dress shirt wrapped around my head okay so now you're crawling in the darkness don't know even where you're going and I think you told yep. me that you were vomiting at a certain point. Well, yeah, I had to. I, I had to get all the crap that got packed into my throat. I mean, the like I said, I mean, I was, you know, whatever it was, I just filled out my health registry <laughs> the form. Uh, but whatever was packed into me, I had to puke that out because it was, you know, I got some of it. I literally had to pull it out of my mouth, and then what was left, you know, was all the way back in my in my throat, I had to puke that out, um, and then uh, and then move on, you know. And plus, I'm sure I was just fucking freaked, right? So <laughs> I'm sure that contributed to the vomiting, also. And and then you're like, your nose was all packed, your ears were packed, uh, yeah. And and my eyes, eyes, man, oh man. And it's completely dark. You're on your hands and knees, crawling, 
And, and then there's a moment where you see a light. Yep. What, what's that Thank like? Goodness. What's that like? Uh, yeah, it was hope, right? It was, you know, it was a fireman who got trapped there. He had uh, uh, one of his fireman axie looking tools and he had a flashlight. <laughs> that was like, okay. Once again, at this point, there's not a lot of rational thought. You're like, I'm stuck in a burning hole and there's a light. You're going to go towards it. And, you know, we, we, there was me, there's a couple other survivors with me. Uh, we followed him and what we thought was a drywall was actually a window into the Porter's books. And he smashed, you know, that window. And, uh, we all walked out onto Vesey street. That was a Porter's books. Once again, a pace in the, the, Money in my hotel, and uh, we all walked out, and that sort of was our when we were we were out, I guess. I would put it. I remember you describing when that light came on, and you realized it was a fireman, and you, you had yeah. a, a great description. You said, "I stuck to that guy like a sticky burr on a bear's ass." <laughs> yeah, that's right. Hey, listen, you know that was that was my way out, right? You know there was. You know, it's pretty obvious when you're in the dark and someone has a light and you see he's a fireman, you're going to stick to him. Right. And that guy, listen, you know, without a doubt, that guy saved my life. And, you know, one of the interesting things was, uh, you know, afterwards, you know, I tried to find him. Right. I tried. I, so I tried to find him. You know, Jenny's dad was, you know, uh, law, was in law enforcement, had connections with the city. And, you know, met with some fairly senior people in the New York City Fire Department. And because I want to thank them, right? The guy saved my life. And met with someone fairly senior. And he said, you're never going to find him. And I said, why? He said, because, you know, the loss that the New York City Fire Department, you know, experienced and the number of heroic guys who went in and didn't come out, there's not a guy in that department who was going to take credit for saving someone's lives when so many of their fellow firemen died. And he said, you just have to, you just have to be at peace with the fact that what's important to that man is that he did his job, but he's not going to take any credit for it because of, you know, the, the culture and the loss of, of life within that, that fire department. So I let it rest. Uh, you know, it's amazing thoughts that people have that you wouldn't expect. Because I, I remember you telling me how Jenny is up in Boston and I, like looking at her six month old son and like she is really conflicted uh, about, wow, does this mean every time I look at him for the rest of my life? Um, I'm going to be thinking about Michael and yeah. it's, I guess, unless you're in that situation, you would never think that way. Right. No, you don't know. I mean, Hey, you know, listen, the, you know, the trauma that she went through was, it wasn't met with sort of the attention and the fair, the fanfare, right. Of what I went through, but you know, she went through a very difficult day. Right. And from the beginning, she thought 81st floor, no way. Yeah. Toast. Yeah. 
there was, you know, I think everybody except my uber religious parents felt that way. Wow. And, and, uh, you know, I remember your brother, uh, Chris is over at NYU. He's working there. And I think you you were telling me how he thought it's over and he just started walking home. Yeah. He, he couldn't even look at the smoke cloud. He was just walking home and trying to figure out how he was going to deal. So now you're a guy who sells telephones and telephone equipment without a telephone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you want to reach Jenny in Boston. You want to reach yeah. your brother. You want to let everybody yeah. know it's okay. And you're through the Borders bookstore and out into the street it is yep. back in the day we used to have those pay phones like that superman yeah. would would yeah. Uh, <laughs> run into to change his clothes is that what you're yeah. focused on when you hit the street or what what are you thinking yeah once i got my head together right you know the, the scene right outside was nuts chaos and when i got a couple blocks away um you know i did see some pay phones and, you know, and there were, there were, you know, people, you know, obviously using them to try to call their family and things like that, but they know they're safe. And, uh, you know, probably not one of my more graceful moments of the day, but, you know, I knew I was like, <laughs> everybody in my life thinks I'm dead. I got to get a message out. Yeah. You know, like for some reason I didn't, you know, there was a woman on the phone and I said, you know, I basically was like, I need to make a call and kind of cut in front of her and push her out of the way and grab the phone. and. You know, I didn't even think to like make a collect call. <laughs> you know, I've reached my pocket and I had a quarter. So the only thing I could do is make a local call. So I called my brother at NYU who was gone to let him know that I was alive. And then when that was done, then I just started heading up towards uh, NYU to try to, to try to find him and, you know, figure out what to do next. You, you know what? And correct me if I'm wrong, but I have a pretty good memory. And and I remember you going to the payphone, and I guess you put a quarter in, and you you called up Boston, and yeah. and you got this recording saying, "Deposit another six dollars and twenty five cents, please." Right. right, like if if I if I had my wits about me, I would have been like, I think they would have accepted the collect call at that moment, but I didn't like I didn't have my wits about me. I was like, oh. Okay, I don't have six dollars. I need to keep running. You know, like I was, you know, clearly I was a little frazzled at this point. Um, but yeah, so uh, I just kept heading north. And you, um, you're running uptown. And how are people uh, who you're passing perceiving you? How are they looking at you? Are you seeing like a reflection of yourself in their eyes? You know, some people are, you know, not looking at me because they're so frazzled themselves. There, there were people who were looking at me. A cop looked at me, and he was like, "Are you okay?" I mean, I, I, the vision of me at this point was, you know, I was covered with dust. I was covered with blood, which wasn't mine. Um, and I was, you know, I, you know, clearly maniacal in my interest to get the the hell out of there. You know, so people could sort of recognize within there. There were people who were close by. I probably looked like one of those people. Um, no one really talked to me. One cop asked me if I needed help and I just kind of walked by him and kept heading north. And at this point, is your mind like 
starting to adjust to the situation? Because I remember at a certain point, you were like trying to grasp like something just to like have a logical connection of what what's happened. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, without a doubt, I mean, it's weird the way your brain works, right? So like in the middle of all of this, you know, I looked, when I got out, I looked up and my tower hadn't fallen yet, but it was on fire. I wasn't aware that the South Tower had fallen. So I was sort of confused why I was only seeing one tower. But at that point, like the gravity of everything I saw was like, you know, well beyond anything my, you know, my liberal arts, Brady Bunch lifestyle had prepared me for. And the only thing I could think about was that somebody, human beings have a history of being violent to each other, you know, and that's when I started thinking about you know, family members who were, you know, affected by the Holocaust and people who had lived through, you know, World War II. And my generation at that time had been entirely untouched by anything. And the closest thing that we had to worry about was, you know, the Gulf War of Saddam Hussein, which from a genuine worry point of view was nothing, right? You know, not to say it wasn't nothing for the people who, who fought that war and the people who were there, but for the kid in his 20s living, you know, going to a liberal arts school in upstate New York, we didn't really have any genuine worries. We didn't live through Vietnam. We didn't live through any wars. And for some reason, all of a sudden, I'm like, okay, you know, I guess it's my turn was where my brain went, you know, and I don't know why, but I was just like, you know, this shit has been happening for thousands of years, and here I am in the middle of it. Are you ever the same after you have that reflection? Uh, hey, you know, probably not, right? You know, I, I, you know, I say this to my kids. I, I use it in conversation a lot. Is wisdom is based on experience, right? Like you always, everybody laughs about like the teenage kid who you know, yells at the guy in his 40s, like, <laughs> you know, F you, old man, what do you know? <laughs> right? And, and he, you know, I understand why he's saying that. But I'll tell you, I know a hell of a lot more than you do. Right? And it's because I've lived through things. And you know, from my point of view, this is something that I've lived through that is pretty heavy. Right? But there are things I know that that kid won't know. You know, and I was that kid. Oh, you were that kid, right? Um, so yeah, without a doubt, these things that I've that I've lived through have crafted, you know, some of my thinking to this day. So you're you're basically heading uptown to try and get to NYU because you're still thinking Chris might be there. Your brother Chris, older yeah. brother. Yeah. And, yeah. and 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 part of, I think I can remember lifting a Guinness and laughing here because you're explaining how Chris was like that stereotypical older brother who was always like giving you noogies and yeah, just, yeah. You know, just beating on you because you, you're the youngest. Yeah. I'm the youngest, right. And I was the youngest. I was the precocious youngest. So yeah, you know, I love Chris and he is the, he is such a good guy. And but like when we were kids, he was the you know, he was the older brother who bullied me and tied me up in a sleeping bag and locked me in a closet just to, you know, entertain himself and <laughs> things like that. 
which he was, you know, I, at this point I totally get, but yeah, so he, uh, um, you know, but yeah, he, uh, yeah, when we, when, you know, I finally saw him, his big joke was that I was such a dick to you when we were younger to prepare you for a day like today. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, so maybe being locked in a sleeping bag in a, in a closet, uh, and getting no you know, gave me the fortitude I needed to, uh, to handle, you know, September 11th. Oh man. So you're headed to NYU and here, here is where you meet a guy, a stranger who, uh, who has a cell phone. I think uh-huh. the guy's name was Gary. Yeah, Gary Murnane. And the guy was, God bless him, you know. He, uh, he, we tried, and cell phone networks weren't working. Because I work in the cell phone industry now, I understand why. They, the calls weren't going through. But I gave him the number, and he persisted in trying to make that call. and. He was the one who called my family, who ultimately got through my family and said, listen, you don't know me. My name's Gary. I'm a construction worker working in Chinatown. And but I saw your son, Michael, uh, and he's alive. So he was the one who delivered that message to my family. Wow, that must have been amazing for him. I mean, to hear whatever came out of the other side of that phone, the relief, the joy, the, the tears. Right. Did you ever get to see him again? I did. Um, and, uh, you know, but I have to say I have not kept in touch with him. So maybe this podcast is an opportunity for me to uh, remind myself that I need to find that guy. Um, we kept in touch. My family sent him letters. But, you know, over the years, I have not kept in touch with him. You know, it's amazing when I think of moments where, like, I was in trouble. I can even remember going to Ground Zero maybe a week later, and uh, the military took me in and went in with the National Guard. Uh, and I, I, I remember his name, Captain Giordano, and he's showing me around. And you, you know how all the dust had covered everything, covered all the cars, just everything was coated with this sort of white dust. Yeah. And yeah, that was the stuff that was in my nose and my ears, my mouth and the same stuff. Man. I know it intimately. And I'm it to just show you how like, crazy it is. Like, even though I've seen this now a million times on CNN replayed, still when you're there, you it's just hard to fathom. And all these cars were just coated with this white dust. And I, I turned to Captain Giordano and I said, well, why didn't some people come and like get their cars? And he looked at me and put his arm on my shoulder and said, Cal, some of those cars don't have owners anymore. And, and he did it in just the kindest way. To, you know, somebody could have said, hey, idiot. Don't you know what happened? Uh, and I was always grateful for that, just the kindness in in his gesture and him yeah. put, putting his hand on my shoulder. And, you know, I'd like to get in touch with him now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, with without a doubt, I, I could I totally relate to that. 
you know, those were heavy days for sure. Did, did you find that as you head uptown, you get to NYU, uh, that people were there with embraces? Obviously, you're looking for your brother who has already walked uh, across the Manhattan Bridge by this time. How are yeah. people treating you? Oh, I mean, incredibly kind. You know, they're, they know I was there. I mean, they're not asking me a lot of questions, but I presented as someone who needed help. So they got me right into a medical center. You know, at, at, at this point, you know, this is the amazing thing. You know, I think it probably came up in the article, but this, the amazing thing about the human body was, you know, at this point, I had hundreds, if not thousands of pieces of fiberglass in my eyes. And my body wouldn't allow that to stop me from seeing uh, while I needed to get out of there. So, you know, while I was running out, while I was running uptown, I, my vision was fine. I mean, I, maybe I was in pain, but I wasn't aware of it. But as soon as I found the safety of NYU, my eyes experienced such intense pain that I couldn't open them anymore because I had thousands of pieces of fiberglass in my eyes. And, you know, anyone who's ever had a scratch cornea, you know, the light sensitivity is a, is a problem. For me, you know, I had thousands of scratches on my eyes. And, you know, they took me in. They, you know, started, you know, systematically starting to clean up my, my eyes so I could see. That was my most acute injury. You know, the way the doctor described it was my eyeballs look like a porcupine under uh, under investigation. And the only way to deal with it was to, you know, just go in there and pluck them out. And that's what they started doing. Then. And so it's like having these little splinters that they're taking out one by one by one. Yeah. You know, once again, I'm not a doctor. I got to believe they could probably grab a bunch of them at a time. But uh, yeah. They were pulling splinters off my eyeball. Oh man! And and this was that. It didn't hurt. It didn't hurt to take them. It actually felt good to have them taken out because it didn't hurt. You know, but fortunately, your cornea is not uh, does not have nerve nerve endings. So at least that was my understanding. Maybe there's a doctor out there who'll tell me differently. Uh, so the, the 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 it wasn't it wasn't pain, but I couldn't because my eyes were so damaged. I couldn't open my eyes to any light was was painful wow so now you you're getting word out at what point are you able to call jenny uh yeah yeah you know i uh they, i the people there uh you know once again the telecommunications networks were entirely overwhelmed and damaged at the time and we were able to make a connection to my parents' house where Jenny and her grandmother and the rest of my family had congregated. And you know, I was able to say, you know, I'm alive. Um, but then we weren't able to, the lines weren't able to sustain a conversation, but we had a conversation like, I'm alive, I'm alive. And then it cut off. But enough to know that she heard my voice and knew that it was real. And, and now uh, your brother Chris finds out He's going to come over to to pick you up, and uh, and that starts the the process where you can like go home and I guess get showered or just try and 
deal with everything that just happened. Yeah, pick the shards of glass out of my out of my uh, my butt my butt cheeks. Yeah, <laughs> that's where that's what? what I started doing. What? There were shards yeah. of glass. Yeah, like you know, like you know, when a car a car door a car window breaks and you get those little chunks of glass. Like, add a couple of those puppies lodged into my into my gluteus maximus. So I had to pick those out in the shower. That was fun. Do you know, did you even know that's, that they're there? No, I, I knew they were there when I was, you know, showering. I'm like, okay, something, something's up there and let me deal with that. Wow. And so it, it almost seems like, like you, it never ends in a way. It's something else that you weren't expecting. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a lot of crazy details of living through a day like that that one can't really predict. <laughs> so, and that's one of them. And so you are now driving up uh, to Westchester, where, where you were living at the time. Is that, is that correct? No, I was living in Brooklyn. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, I was living in Park Slope at the time. But uh, Jenny's family was in uh, Larchmont. Okay, so they were in Westchester. Everyone had kind of, everyone had, a, you know, gotten out of the city and gone up there. Jenny's dad was sort of, was home base at that point. Got it. And the, the, one of the images that I most recollect is when you're coming to the door. Uh, and mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't know if you rang the bell or they knew you were coming. And you were just describing hearing that, like, Dum 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 dum. Yeah. Uh, the footsteps right. coming, coming down. Yeah, right. uh, yeah. I I don't know why that so resonated with me, but it's it's one of those images that just yeah. has stuck with me to this day. Right, right. It's, it's one of those sensory things where like I couldn't open my eyes, but I knew from the weight and the pace that. It was that that was Jenny, and it wasn't my dad. It was my mom. It you know, like it was so it was so clearly her. Well, you know what? I just made the connection. I guess if you're you're not really seeing, then you're really going to be relying on your on your ears. So now you, you're home. You can hug Jenny, and uh, they're going to hand over your six month old son. Ben, he's in your hands. And again, you know, it's interesting. I remember you telling me how he was making like happy sounds. So really a yeah. lot of your memories were coming from your ears at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Totally different sensory, uh, sensory perception. You know, it would, would be a couple days before uh, they got enough um, of the shards out of my eyes that I could open my eyes again. So, yeah, you know, just so just feeling him. I knew him. You know, he spent as much time as I physically could with my son. And I knew when he made certain wiggle movements and we made certain sounds that that was, you know, him being happy. And uh, he was happy. He was clueless, which felt so good. You know, he had no idea what happened. You know, he just was the same doofy little, you know, six month old baby <laughs> that in some ways that felt so good. And now he's bigger than you. Yeah. He cooks me up on the basketball court on a regular basis. 
He's taller than I am. And he is, uh, he's doing great. He's a fantastic kid. And what, what was it like watching him go through the process of learning about that day for you? You know, when he was little, we let him know we were there, that I was there, that Jenny was, you know, part of it. So, you know, he's always, it's always been just part of his life. And, you know, when he was younger, we didn't expose him to the overall detail of it all, neither to, you know, Braden, who was my uh, son that was born in 2004. But as I got older, you know, we, you know, quite frankly, we, we used your article that you, uh, you know, help, uh, help craft to tell a story, right? I think it was, you know, from my point of view, that article played, uh, you know, in a very important role because, you know, early on, you know, I didn't want to tell the story in that level of detail, but, you know, 500 times, but I understood that everybody wanted to know. I was so close to something so big that people wanted to ask the questions that were answered in that article, right? So when I was three months out and sort of in my PTSD, you know, telling it over and over, maybe wasn't, you know, what I wanted to do. It was easy when I said, listen, here's the article, you can read it, you know, and it also helped when, with my, with my boys as, you know, I got years and years removed. There were details captured in that article that maybe I would recall it, maybe I wouldn't, but it was an easy way to say, guys, I think you're old enough to really understand what dad went through, you know, read this and then let's talk. And I did that with both my boys. So I'm very thankful to you for so accurately crafting the story for me because it's become a very useful tool and it continues to be a useful tool. I mean, I was getting my hair cut today by my, the guy who cuts my hair down here, my friend Savage Matt, who cuts my hair. And he was like, so what are you doing after this? And I said, I'm going to be on this podcast. And he didn't know I was in 9-11. And I could either jump into it or I could say, Google Michael Wright Esquire, and that will give you everything you need to know. And, you know, so from that point of view, it, it's uh, been hugely helpful. Well, you, it makes me so happy to hear that because I don't think in all the years of writing, I could remember another time where my writing did such a service. And it's a beautiful thing to hear you say that. And so it, it, took, yeah. it took a lot of us uh, to new places. And then if you're dealing with the aftermath, that must have been really surreal. I remember you telling me that like so many people were coming at you immediately to like, let you know how much they loved you and cared about you. And like, what does that feel like having gone through what you did and then seeing that response? You know what? I mean, it's, it may sound selfish, but it was really nice. Right. People tend to emotionally restrain themselves. I felt like our country, everybody was so affected by 9-11 that I had, you know, dudes that I played fantasy football with or bros that I just 
maybe our most emotional moment was doing a beer funnel in college, you know, reaching out to me and, you know, with a very emotional response. And I felt like I had the benefit of what people say after someone dies, you know, we've all been to funerals or we've all had to eulogize people. And I'm dealing with that right now, currently in my life. And everybody thinks about all the, it's a time to think about all the reasons why they love the people in their lives. And I had a very, you know, I can look at it now. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it wasn't easy to see at the time, but I can look at it now. I saw all of these people in my life telling me how much you love me and all of the reasons why they love me. You know, it was a, a odd benefit of all the shit I had to deal with and all, everything I had to go through having lived through that. Wow, you know, not many people get to have that. Right. Uh, to have so many people just tell you how valuable you are to their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All at once. Uh, d- does that change the way you see yourself forever? No. I don't think so. You know, I mean, it, 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 I think it's, it's nice. It's, it doesn't change the way I see myself. I think it changes the way I see the people who are in my life. Right. It, it changes the way that, the, you know, the value of family, the value of friends. Right. It gives in very, very stark relief. Uh, an understanding of how awesome that is, right? Whether it changed me or not, I mean, people are very bad, in my opinion, of uh, seeing themselves, right? So I'll let other people comment on what this experience did to me, but uh, I will say it was really, really nice to be able to um, understand and appreciate the people in my life. Listen, I'm a super, super fortunate guy. I've got a huge family that all loves each other. I've got a huge set of friends who who make me laugh, who who are there for me. That's what I got out of it. Once again, I'll let someone else comment about uh, you know what it did to me, and <laughs> there may be varying opinions there. What you know, one of the one of the funny lines I can remember it actually turned into the end of the story was when you were telling me that people were saying, Hey, Michael, you made it out. You're destined for great things. And then you're saying, yeah, great. I made it out. Now why not put a little pressure on me while yeah, you're at exactly. it? Exactly. Exactly. I'm at my most fucked up stage of my life. And why don't you just, you know, <laughs> pile on a little bit. Uh-oh. Yeah. I mean, Hey, I understand why they would say that, but, um, I don't know. I, I never had a, um, a fatalistic view of this, right? I've I've just felt like I've got to sort of process what happened in my life and, you know, move on. I don't really have an option. Well, this is why that I was so happy to be able to talk with you for this podcast because anybody who is in a difficult place, some kind of straits, when they hear what it was like when you were on the ground at ground zero, in the darkness, uh, reaching to just see if you were still intact, uh, and then thinking, oh man, I'm alive, but this is worse. 
because I'm going to end up like one of them dudes in Pompeii. Uh, they'll find right. me years from now. I think that this story allows us all to see that there's humor in everything and that if you can you find ways to find the light. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's right. I mean, listen, you know, to a certain degree, if there is life perspective that I've gained from this, it's that life, you have one, you know, you, you, you get a peek behind the curtain if you live through something like I lived through, right? So you can either live your life scared that it's going to happen again, or you can use that, that insight that, you know, life happens once, right? And sometimes we build things up in our mind that are, that we perceive as bad, that when you put it against something as bad as 9-11, it's really not that bad, right? Yeah, it might be, it might suck, it might make you uncomfortable, it might make you sad, but if you're up against, quite frankly, death, you might look at it differently, right? From my point of view, you know, we've, we've spent a lot of time talking about where I was then and where I am now. And, uh, you know, there's been some changes in my life. For example, you know, Jenny and I are, we're not together anymore, but we are still very, very much each other's support system. We're still parents together. And that's something that maybe wouldn't have been as easy if uh, I didn't have some of this perspective. Right? Uh, I mean, for just... the two of us, for the two of us, right? Once again, I've, I've talked time and again about how my public, my experience is very public and very visceral, right? Hers was very private, right? But, you know, there's, she, you know, had to live through some, some difficulties of more silently than, than I did. You know, that's something that, we live through together and we continue to live through together still, even though we're not together anymore. You know, that's something that we, you know, I love her dearly still. She's not my wife, but I think sometimes, you know, we talked about wisdom earlier, you know, the wisdom of having a life perspective that, you know, while Jenny and I may not be together as husband and wife, we're still together as parents and we're still together as friends and we're still together that we live through these type of things. Yeah. I mean, the moment of, Oh no, Oh no, Jenny and Ben, Jenny and Ben, that, that can never go away. It It could never go away. Right. Right. You know, then, and that's, uh, and that's important to me. Right. You know, that, that feeling I had there is doesn't dissipate at all because the feelings I had then were around my life or my lack of life that I was anticipating at the time. You know, the impacts of me not being there for Bennett and, you know, subsequently the other children in my life. Yeah, the, um, the, the thing that really hit me and this played out in the story when it was published right afterward was that this made you see your older brother. Brian in a very different light because yeah. he had had cancer uh, at yeah. that point. Uh, yeah. What, what, 
how did what happened to you on 911 like reframe the way you saw him? Well, you know, it's it's a very difficult topic for me to talk about right now because thankfully that was 16 years ago. Uh, my brother uh, was able to survive the cancer he was going through at the time. He just passed away this past week after a hard, hard, hard fought, you know, 16 years where he showed incredible resiliency. Um, and uh, ultimately, it, it wasn't the cancer that got him. It was the the effects of all the chemotherapy that he had to go through over the years. But, you know, how did it affect my my relationship with my brother? You know, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I think it was, he was already, you know, we were both of us were dealing with mortality in very different ways. Um, but it certainly helped us to have some conversations um, about, you know, our, our view of life. And listen, <laughs> with, with the last of six kids, we're the two, we're the only two that ever had to really confront death in a meaningful way. There um, were some, some conversations there that, strengthened an already incredibly strong relationship I had with my brother. And you were telling me a little about this when we spoke not long ago. Uh, what really struck me was some of the decisions that he was able to make later on in life that were like hugely inspirational to me just to listen to them. Uh, because he basically, even though he, he knew he was saddled with this disease, he wanted to live his life to the fullest, and he fell in love. Yeah. Yeah, hey, listen, you know, a survivor story is a story of mortality, right? And my brother had to face it in a longer, drawn-out way than obviously my very acute, you know, someone flies a plane into my building kind of way. But, you know, he, over the years, he allowed himself to sort of process the fact that, you know, he was confronting an illness that was compromising his life and he had a choice to make. And ultimately, he wound up making a choice that he should live his life. He certainly had some difficult years where he didn't have that perspective. But ultimately, he came to a point where he decided that his life is worth living. And that started with embracing, you know, whatever that life would give him. And, you know, part of that was dating, how to do the things he loves. He started meditating. He started cooking. And that decision to, to live his life led him to meet a woman uh, who is spectacular woman who became the love of his life. And here's a guy who, you know, he played in a band called, an angst-ridden band called Slughog. <laughs> so he was, you know, this, this band was, it was loud, it was angry, it was, you know, I had a lot of fun going to concerts, but, you know, and here's a guy who made a decision to change his life, and then he met his wife, Mary Ellen, and here's a guy who was, you know, the lead singer of a Slughog who lived the last <laughs> five or six years of his life, schmoopy in love. 
Oh like, man. This this woman this woman made him a hey, this guy I've known my entire life, right? And he was my best friend, he was my closest confidant. He spent the last years of his life in a state of happiness that I never knew he was capable of. And it was because he opened himself up to embrace his life. And doing that, he met Mary Ellen. And then, you know, I miss him dearly. And I'm not going to dig into it too much because I might start crying and it's not what your podcast wants. <laughs> but um, he lived the end of his life. Even though he was physically compromised, he lived it happy. He lived it in that with a level of happiness that I've never seen him enjoy. And I wish he were here with me. But if there was a plan B, what he had the last you know number of years of his life was spectacular for him, and it was so gratifying for me as someone who loved him to see. Uh, it's just beautiful to hear that. You know, there's it really comes down to how many ticks on the clocks do we all get, and what are we going right. to do with them? And and that's why. Right. I so value knowing you and your story because, and your relationship with your brother, because it always seemed to me that you had a great idea how to get the most ticks out of all your ticks. And I, I can't thank you enough this for coming on and putting out your heart here. I, I hope that anybody who's hearing this and is in a rough place can know, man, you're on the floor. Just keep crawling. Get that wet shirt around your head and just keep moving. Uh, somewhere there's light. Those words seem to be an appropriate way to sum the episode up. My thanks to Michael for friendship that's rooted in a single conversation. Today, I'd like to extend my best wishes and deep feelings to anybody who was affected by 9-11. I hope the events of that day have brought you great strength, and I hope that time has enabled you to find some measure of peace. I'd also like to thank Tim Ferriss for pushing me to start this podcast so I can pass stories like this on to the next generation. This is just the beginning. See you next week.